Hi, it's Dominic Preziosi, uh, editor of Commonweal with the Commonweal Podcast, and I'm here with associate editor Matthew Sitman and our managing editor Kate Lucky and our books columnist Tony Domestica. And we're going to talk about books. It's August, and our August fiction issue is now out. And we're also going to be speaking with, well, actually, I will be speaking with the actress Gabriella Cartol, who's the star of the film The Chambermaid. Uh, we'll be right back. So, Matt, I think you've got some books that you want to tell our readers about. Yeah, well, I think like a lot of us at Commonwealth, I'm always reading. And it's usually a mix of fiction, nonfiction, and even some poetry I, I try to uh, have on hand. But one of the books I wanted to talk about that I just recently read was called Life of David Hockney, the great British artist. And it's by a woman named Catherine Cusset. She's a, a French writer, and it was just recently translated. And it's essentially a fictionalized biography of Hockney. And it was really interesting in part because of the genre, that fictionalized biography. I'd never really read something quite like that. But it was exceptionally good at elucidating the connections between what was going on in his life and the various artistic breakthroughs that he uh, has achieved throughout his career. So, you know, the story behind this or that famous painting or his fascination with photography, or even more recently, he's done a lot of sketches on iPads. Hmm. So it's a really, it, it was interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of them was just kind of getting behind the creative process of one of the towering artistic geniuses of the 20th century. And you're a, you're a Hockney fan, if, as I recall. Right. Yeah. It's a, and it's kind of coincided with, there's a documentary that was produced about David Hockney in the 1970s called A Bigger Splash that was recently digitized and was being screened here in New York mm -hmm. at Metrograph, the kind of art house cinema mm -hmm. uh, in the city. And then I also bought a book called Hockney's Pictures. And it's a kind of retrospective of his career arranged and chosen by Hockney himself with various quotations and snippets from some of his writings and interviews over the years. Hmm. So that was, I would say, of the books I've read this summer, that was probably my favorite. It was just different. It was mm -hmm. something unusual. And Hockney lived a very interesting life. He grew up very working class. Some listeners will know he was, he was gay. So kind of his love life, his coming out, his coming to terms with himself. And that was a major feature of his art to mm -hmm. kind of discovering his own sensibility. Yeah. And so those things were deeply entwined. Mm -hmm. So that was the fiction I've read this summer. I'm reading right now a lot about, in terms of nonfiction, American conservatism and the American right. So I'm reading Tim Alberta's new book called American Carnage. Uh, Alberta's a uh, reporter for Politico, and he's kind of a conservative himself. So he had a lot of great sources on the right and in the Republican Party. And this book is kind of looking at what happened to the Republican Party over the last decade. Mm -hmm. So starting with kind of the election of Obama, the rise of the Tea Party, and then, you know, uh, well, where we know, are today, where we are today. Mm -hmm. uh, so it kind of ends with Trump's election. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was how the Republican Party grappled with the kind of rise of these more extreme, uh, almost populist, if you can call them that, kind of ideas and movements on the right, and then how they processed Trump coming on the scene. Yeah. Uh, so that was the fiction or nonfiction <laughs> I've been reading. We, well, we, wish it, we wish it were fiction. Right, maybe. right. Yeah. And then for poetry, uh, after Marie Ponceau died, I have to admit I went back to her collected 
poems, which is just a fantastic collection. Mm -hmm. And I've been picking my way through that too. Yeah, Marie Ponceau, just as a reminder for our listeners, a longtime Commonweal contributor. And uh, yeah, she died earlier this summer at the age of well, 90 something. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought the New York Times obituary for her was really great, by the way. It really gives a sense of her kind of extraordinary life and how as a, a single mother, how the, the decades long gap between her early work and then I think the work that kind of brought her to prominence. Yeah. So that's been a real pleasure too, to go yeah. back through her a, work. A fascinating story. And actually in our August issue as well, Rosemary Dean uh, writes a tribute to Marie. So yeah. th thanks, Matt. Yeah, no problem. Kate, can we turn it over to you? Sure. So when I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking about structuring my recommendations or my comments around different ways that I read or decide what I'm going to read. The first way is sort of ongoing projects, so big books or big collections that I find it really difficult to sit and read in one go. So on my bedside table right now, I have the last edition of Tin House, the literary journal, which is done, RIP. Oh, yeah, RIP. And <laughs> it's this great big volume with this cool gold embossed house on the cover filled with short stories and poetry and nonfiction. A Lewis Hyde excerpt actually mm. is in the issue, but I find it hard with literary journals, especially to sit down and read the whole thing in one go. So I read a little bit at night. I have a collection of Elizabeth Bishop poetry on my table that's also an ongoing project of mm -hmm. sorts. But then another way that I decide what to read is really old-fashioned. It's just through recommendations from friends. And the novel I wanted to talk a little bit about is Ask Again, Yes, which came out in May. It's by this woman named Mary Beth. I think it's Keen. K-E-A-N-E. -E. And it's funny because it actually was up for an option in the Book of the Month Club, which a friend got me a couple <laughs> months of for free. And I was talking to Tony about it this morning. Actually, the blurb for it was so terrible that I didn't pick it <laughs> as my book. Two families and their tortured history and the burbs. I was like, yeah, eh. Yeah. But then I went and had drinks with my friend, Harrison, and he said, actually, this is like one of the best books I've read all summer. He had seen past the blurb and ordered it with his book of the month subscription and said it was great. So I went to the library and got it. And I just started it last night and it read it all morning on the train. And it's mm. great. It's two families, um, two dads who are police officers, two mothers sort of suffering from what's implied as loneliness or some kind of mental illness in one case, and then their children and how they grow up together and sort of how they support each other in their different familial circumstances. But the voice is really fresh. Um, takes place in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's just been a great quick read, I would say. Already I can tell that it's one of those novels that's just full of sharp details and you care about the characters and you'll just be able to fly through it. So that's my reading project right now. My reading project last week sort of epitomizes a third kind of reading you do, which is the reading you do when there's nothing else going on and you have to pass the time so you read whatever is in front of you. <laughs> and I was thinking about this in relation to um, like childhood errands, what kept coming to mind is like my parents taking me to Home Depot and you're so bored and they're picking out things for the backyard project. So you just start reading like the granite countertop catalogs or like <laughs> the warnings on the back of the pesticide because you're so bored. I mean, that's like a time before smartphones because mm -hmm. now there's so rarely a time when I can't entertain myself somehow, but reading used to be how I did that. So last week we, um, my husband and I were on vacation in London, where I had never been, and we had a Rick Steves London guidebook from 2018, and we read the heck out of that thing. We had no 
Wi-Fi. We had no ability to pass the time any other way when we were in line. So we got to read all of Rick's takes on British history and politics and economics and geography, as well as his recommendations that led us all around the city and his maps. And it just served a purpose that a phone could serve in theory, but in a way more tactile way. Like we marked the pages of the great taverns that we found and he had guides for how to make your way through a museum room and what portraits to pay special attention to and how they would be connected. And I was just struck by the fact that to find all that information on the internet, you would have to go to many discrete mm-hmm. places. So mm-hmm. it got me thinking more about like the travel book as a genre that seems like it would have become outmoded by now, but actually was exceptionally useful for us and also just a great diversion on our trip. A couple lessons here, I think. Don't trust cover copy on, on <laughs> for novels. Uh, and also, yeah, the carry a guidebook because you can fold over the pages, which is kind of the thing I've always enjoyed doing when yes. I have, a, when I have a, a travel guide. So thanks, Kate. Books columnist, Tony Domestico. Thanks, Dominic. Um, So Kate mentioned long-term reading projects. And actually, at your recommendation, Dominic, I have started a long-term reading project this summer, which is Robert Caro's big uh, encyclopedic biographical treatment of LBJ. So I've read the first two volumes. They're just as good as everyone says they are, but that will be a long-term project Mm. because the second one is actually relatively slim at 360 pages. Mm -hmm. And whatever the third, I forget the title, but whatever the the third volume is, it's 1,200 pages. Mm -hmm. And I I love the summer because I don't have uh, teaching responsibilities. Now that the semester is starting up again, I don't think I'm going to be embarking on a 1,200-page political biography. (laughs) Um, But Caro is is as good as everyone uh, has been telling me he is for for quite some time. The books that I wanted to focus on today, uh, like Matt, are in different genres. That's one of the great things uh, about Uh, summer reading for me is it can be relatively undirected reading that I pick up a book that I happen to be interested in and lose a day in it. And the first book I wanted to talk about is a book of poetry that was published in November, I think it was, from FSG by a poet named John Cady, K-O-E-T-H-E. And it's called Walking Backwards, Poems 1966 to 2016. So it's a selection of Katie's poems from uh, over several decades. And he's a poet who I hadn't been familiar with before and who has a really interesting biography. In addition to being an incredibly accomplished poet, he's a philosopher. Uh, he's, he taught for years in the philosophy department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's emeritus there now. And his his poems are, I'd say, deeply but lightly philosophical. So I say deeply because they're consistently engaged with large-scale epistemological and ethical questions. So how do we know what we know? Uh, What does it mean to live in and through time? What is the good life? What is happiness? Um, But I say they're lightly philosophical because, for lack of a better term, they're not at least on the surface level, particularly difficult poems. They're easily approachable poems. Mm -hmm. They're poems that you can really enjoy just on a first read and then spend a lot more time with them because he is engaging with uh, really central questions of the human condition. They're formally accomplished, but they're just incredibly deep and moving when he's thinking about 
aging and he's thinking about memory and he's thinking about how childhood appears differently from the vantage point of, you know, someone in his, his later stages. So it's a book that I've loved dif- dipping into and I think I'll, I'll continue reading going forward. I also wanted to mention just quickly one novel in, in one work of nonfiction. The novel is by an Argentinian novelist named Selva Almada. It's her first book translated into English. Uh, the translator is Chris Andrews, and the title is The Wind That Lays Waste. It was published, I believe, earlier in the summer by Grey Wolf Press. And uh, it's been described as a kind of Argentinian uh, Flannery O'Connor kind of thing mm-hmm. in that the main character, one of the main characters is an itinerant preacher driving through the desolate Argentinian countryside. He's driving with his daughter named Lenny. Their car breaks down and uh, essentially the novel takes place at a garage, a dilapidated garage where they they take their car to get fixed. And at a certain level, not much happens in the novel. They wait for their car to get fixed. They have a few drinks, or at least the adults have mm-hmm. a few drinks. And it's a it's a slow, quiet, spare novel. It's only around 110 pages. You can read it in an afternoon at the beach. But on another level, it's a, a deeply theological novel in that the one of the main characters, as I mentioned, is a preacher. And the owner of the garage that they bring their car to is a committed atheist. And he says that he's always thought of religion as only for women and the weak. And so although at the level of plot, not a ton happens, there are really uh, interesting and nuanced conversations between the preacher and this mechanic uh, who goes by the name El Gringo about how religion can offer comfort and consolation to the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized. But it's also a novel that is unsparing in its vision of how religion can also be a form of restriction or mm. constriction. And then quickly, the the final book I wanted to draw attention to is the first collection by the New Yorker staff writer, uh, Gia Tolentino, called Trick Mirror. So that's out from Random House. And if our listeners are readers of The New Yorker. They'll be um, familiar with Tolentino's uh, wide-ranging interests. She's written for the magazine about everything from athleisure wear to contemporary fiction. And this collection, which actually, I think, refreshingly, is not just a recycling of pieces she's already written. They're actually, they were written for the book, but they're similarly wide-ranging in their interests. So she has a fantastic essay about her longtime love of and interest in children's literature. She has an essay about rape culture at UVA where she was an undergraduate herself. She has an incredible uh, funny and uh, and uh, interesting essay about her own experience being on a reality TV show when she was in high school. And so they touch on a number of different topics, but really she's interested centrally in the relationship between identity and performance, especially for someone like her, who's a young urban professional woman, how uh, she and people in her kind of subject position are called to perform a certain kind of self on social media Mm -hmm. in particular. And so she has a number of essays that touch on you know, what happens to our notions of selfhood when we're continually seeking out experiences so as to advertise them to the rest of the world. And it's a fantastic essay, a fantastic uh, collection. 
in general, but there's one essay at the center which was written for the book but has been published in The New Yorker now called Ecstasy, which – uh, is I think one of the best essays I've read in the last several that years. That was around Memorial Day. It appeared in the New York. Yeah, really fantastic piece. Yeah, it's about her growing up evangelical in Houston, mm-hmm. and so it's called ecstasy. And that really has two different meanings in the essay. First of all, the religious ecstasy that she and her family and her friends and her community members experienced when you know you're at a service and you feel called by God and mm-hmm. you feel both kind of unselved and redeemed at the same time. And the essay really beautifully talks about that experience and also really beautifully and painfully talks about her falling away from faith and seeking out a different kind of ecstasy, a different kind of unselfing. In in her case, it actually is in the form of ecstasy, the drug, MDMA. Um, And she talks about how, interestingly, both religion and drugs have offered her, continue to offer her a kind of portal into this ecstatic union with something beyond mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 really, I mean, it's literary, it's beautifully written, but it's also interesting for any readers who, uh, who want to think about what happens when faith leaves us, mm-hmm. what does faith offer us, and, and how, if at all, can we seek kind of proxies for faith. Yeah, I was really struck by the, the, the intimacy and the immediacy in that piece. And there's some really poignant moments in the, when she describes leaving the... the the physical building of the megachurch yeah. to go to her car and she uh, listens to uh, uh, to music in the car and realizes she cannot go back in, into the church. It's really wonderful uh, writing, I think. Yeah, and there are great details mm-hmm. about Houston, about yeah. the hip-hop scene right. in Houston. Um, it's just it's yeah. just an exemplary piece and, yeah. and it's, it's the centerpiece of what I think is a really, really fantastic first collection. Yeah, and I think we'll be treating that in the magazine at some point, Kate. Is that something that's on your... That's the hope, yes. I do want to get to what else we're looking forward to. So, Matt, what's uh, what's coming up for you? Well, over the next few months, this fall and then over the winter, there's a number of books, two in particular, coming out about the religious left. Uh, and there's one called Spiritual Socialism that University of Pennsylvania Press oh. is putting out in October. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have requested a, a review copy and I'm uh, looking forward to reading that. Excellent. Uh, Kate, what do you got coming? Besides the Gia Tolentino, what's, uh, what's on your list? Yeah, another collection of essays. Make It Scream, Make It Burn, which is Leslie Jameson's new collection, who was my teacher in graduate school and was actually Tony's classmate. Um, full disclosure. Full disclosure, yeah. It's not why I'm plugging her, though. I think her writing's great. But I love her essays. She's so good at doubling back and interrogating herself, which is something I try to do in my own writing. It makes it hard to have a clear argument about something. But I just love the way Leslie always undercuts what you think she would say. She is challenging our own feelings and our own assumptions and coming out at something that feels true, even if it's complicated. Great. Now, Tony, I guess uh, you've got to start worrying about the upcoming school year, but will that leave you any time to read at all? And if so, what do you think you might be uh, taking up? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a frenzied couple of weeks before mm-hmm. classes actually start where I try to read as much as I possibly can. But the, the two books I'm most looking forward to are Caleb Crane's new novel, Overthrow. Caleb Crane is... His first novel, Necessary Errors, is, I think, maybe the best novel of the last decade or so. It's an incredibly uh, finely realized, finely imagined description of a young, recent college graduate moving to 
Eastern Europe right after he graduates in the uh, early 90s. And um, it's it's a very Jamesian novel in American Abroad. Um, and it's Jamesian not just in that structure but in its uh, beautiful, supple um, sentences and syntax and sensibility. Um, and he has a new novel coming out called Overthrow, which is in part about the Occupy movement. And then I'm also really excited for Fanny Howe's uh, newest collection of poetry, which is coming out from Grey Wolf uh, called Love and I which uh, a poem or several poems from that collection will be featured in the magazine. So we're excited to have uh, Fanny in our pages. Yeah, that's going to be great. And speaking of our pages, I I mentioned at the outset, our uh, August fiction issue is currently available. The print issue is out. And of course, you can find everything that's in the print issue also on our website. And that includes a new short story from William Giraldi. A review of Gregor von Rizzori's Abel and Cain by John Cotter, and a review of Where We Came From, the latest novel from Oscar Cesaris. And that review is written by our Garvey writing fellow, Nicole Ann Lobo. Matt, Kate, Tony, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. The Chambermaid is the debut feature film of Mexican director Lila Aviles. It's a closely chronicled drama about a young woman named Eve, played by Gabriela Cartol, who cleans rooms in a four-star Mexico City hotel. It's a quiet movie with no music or soundtrack. Cartol appears in every frame, and the action never leaves the hotel as we follow Eve through her daily, unglamorous grind, her shifts seemingly running into one another so that it seems that this is the extent of her existence. Yet Aviles makes clear the complexity and depth of her heroine. Through her interactions with guests, her attempts to educate herself in the hotel employee's GED program, and her relationships with co-workers. Along the way, we see Eve grow from an optimistic, almost idealistic young worker to a weary long-timer accepting the built-in limits of the job and the power of the invisible bureaucratic apparatus that exerts such control over these workers. All of it conveyed through the contained, miraculously expressive performance of Gabriella Cartol. What was it like working with a first-time film director? Did it seem different from your other experiences? Or, I mean, you're, you're a young actor yourself. Maybe the fact that this is – you're sort of both young and getting involved in this the first time. Maybe you had some sort of connection. Or how did, how did that work out? I think it was great. I mean, I was surprised. She was such – she's really talented. She's, she's bright. And um, the same approach she had to meet with me – because she didn't know my work. I mean, she saw me La Tiricia, but really I, I wasn't recognized or anything like that. So I think it was a trust that we both had in each other. And to me, it was a revelation. And for her, I think I was a revelation too. So it was really great. I thought she was really prepared. She had been working for like around seven or eight years in this thing. So when we finally came together, it seemed to me that she was more than prepared and she had so much passion and she knew exactly what she wanted to do. So that was really, uh, really easy in that sense, working with her. And she opened up her heart completely to me and we had a great connection and communication. And she said to me, I remember she said, Gabriela, this is my heart here. So I'm going to I'm going to give it to you and I hope you receive it and I hope that you can also, you know, do the honor to represent it here because you're going to be the face, you know, you're going to be like a maestra. So, yeah, she, to her it was really 
important that I had a conscious that I was going to be in 120 sequences of 120. So, yeah, you're you're in every no scene. Rest. You're in every scene. Is that right? Yes, every single scene I am in. And she said, that's hard work. Do you understand what that is? And I was like, yeah. Did you feel this weight of responsibility being handed such a, you know, such a project, something that she was so in love with? Yeah, of course. And uh, I think that was the, the great and chemical connection with her that, that she trusted me to do the role, to play the role. And I trusted her completely. Mm. Eyes closed. I said, yes, of course. And, and if you say that I need to move that and that way, I will do it. And if you say that it's not that way, then I won't do it. You've given a, you sort of gave a general sense of the things that she suggested that you do. But what about, did she have anything specific that she asked you to do? Any su uh, suggestions or guidelines? Yeah, all the time. I mean, Lila works. I mean, she had a screenplay, well-written screenplay, but also she likes improvisation because she likes, you know, she likes life and she's uh, very curious. So she didn't want anything to, to be like choreographic or she didn't want to feel that you're watching a movie made, you know, she wanted to for the movie to feel like alive, the hotel vibe and the uh, like real life, but not, but in a feature film, not a documentary, you know, because it's not the same, but um, she wanted to kind of feel like it was real. And she said, and if mistakes happen, they happen because that's life. So much of your acting in this film is done wordlessly. It's your, your facial expressions, your eyes. And not to mention, I think this is something that really impressed itself on me, the actual physical activity of the work itself is done by your character, the chambermaid, Eve. Yeah. Was this a new kind of acting for you? And, and how did you go about preparing for it? I think when I read the script, I saw like I could, you know, the instinct part when they tell you, I think I could go down that line. I don't know if I'm explaining myself, but every time I get like a scene as an actress, I always think, I think I could play it this way or that way because there's something within me that feels that it's going to be, it's going to, to have something to, to say with the character. That's the way I, I approached it. I said to Lila, I have like a suggestions for it. And then you tell me whether that's the line we want to go or or if I'm completely lost here. Mm -hmm. And then she said, no, you are, you are that. So in the casting, she looked, she was looking for that kind of look mm. that I had. Uh, and I have also uh, kindness, but also you could be malicious, but you, you know, cause, cause we're not only one thing mm -hmm. in, 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 in being humans. I mean, we have, you know, when, when we get angry, we have to have, to, to find that look as well, even though the character is shy most of the time. But she also has life, you know, within her. So for her, it was really important that I understood that there wasn't going to be like a black and white character. It was going to be complex. And she wanted me to, to have that kind of look and, and to find her voice as well and the body language. Yeah, and I, I want to get to that too, because this is something as a viewer, I think, people would wonder was the this was all actually filmed in a hotel yes it, it was filmed in a hotel in mexico city and it was all one location we never went out of it 
that it looked that way. And it seems like what I think is sort of fascinating about the film too is even though it's clear that your character is going through a number of shifts in her work over the course of many days, it feels yeah. like one long continuous shift, which I thought was fascinating. And I, I want to get back a little bit to some of that physical preparation too, because there's so much in the film that you do to sort of show the work of the actual person who has to do this kind of work from the way you smooth the sheets and the pillows to the way you locate the walkie talkie in the pocket of your shirt. Was there any preparation or training for this or how did you go about that? I mean, because it just looked so uh, there was real. Like a couple of sessions. I think I, I had two sessions with uh, chambermaids that worked in the hotel, like, but it was really express really. I mean, they just told me, look, this is the way, you put the pillow down and it was like an express <laughs> preparation. But Lila, as I said, she had prepared herself, well, investigating the, uh, and the whole world and universe of the chambermaids, that she had also learned a lot of these skills. So when she had an instruction, she was like, no, you need to be precisely, you know, you need to do it this way or Gabby, do it that way or... So the preparation was more mentally more than than physically. I was willing to do it. And also she trusted me that I had a skill for it. I want to get back to the, the, the depth of your character, and which has developed and expressed over the course of this plot, where uh, we sort of see Eve seeking two goals. And one is on the surface. She kind of wants to, she wants to get this dress that has been left behind by a guest. But then the other conflict or the other goal that she has, and it emerges more gradually, is in fact to work her way up in the hotel and the organization to get a better position as the chambermaid on the top floor of the hotel. And yes. I was struck by this in the course of the portrayal. We see Eve go from wanting something that is sort of more what a child would want yes. to wanting what an adult would. There's sort of this transformation in the course of this short film where we see Eve go from kind of a child to an adult and sort of lose some of this innocence, I suppose. Yes. And was this something you saw in the reading when you read the script? And is this something that you really were able to seize on to the, this conflict, this drama to bring it to life? Yes, definitely. Yes. Uh, that's something that I, that I noticed myself too. And I, I talked about it with Leela and then she said, yeah, that's right. There comes like a lot of it, like little events in your life that maybe you don't realize when you're changing, but then all of a sudden the change is there. And it's not because of one thing. It's because of the little things that are happening in your life daily that we don't, we don't really, I don't know what would be the word, but we don't really perceive maybe, or I don't know. So she said to me, you could say that there is an event in her life but no, I think she's, she's like a lot of little events. She doesn't get dressed. She gets she gets uh, stolen from the petition that she that she should have earned. Also, that encounter with the guy, they're cleaning the windows. I mean, it's a lot of little things that make her make a decision at the end of the day. And also the the routine, you know, she was in. She goes from like a little child. To an adult, but in, within the drama, she needed that, you know, in, in an hour and 40 minutes. But she said, but if, if we would be in real life, it's 
it's everything. It's since you wake up at 4 a.m. and you have to go to work, take two hours to get there. And it's everything. You can't. And, and she's a, she was a single mom as well. I think and that's a very mm. important part that we haven't really raised yet. yet that, yes, the, the character Eve also has a child herself, whom, of course, we never yes. see because Eve is always at work. Yeah. And she's a single mom. That makes you all, you're not a mother, but you will understand that you you have to be a warrior for, for that child. And there's something that changes as well. There were two characters that you interacted with in the film that I thought were very important. And yeah. one was the young mother from Buenos Aires, played by Augustina Quinci. Uh, yes. And the other was the co-worker. Uh, I think her real name is Miriam, played by Teresa Sanchez, but she's known yes. in the film as Minitoy. Uh, yeah, kind of a lar right. larger than life character among the staff. And I, I was really interested in how Leela and you sort of played these scenes out uh, to sort of tell us and tell the audience something about how the film investigates relationships between women and among women and also across socioeconomic lines as well. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Yeah, when I met Agustina, we, we had like a couple of rehearsals with Agustina and we discussed it, like what's in, what was the importance of our encounter, of our encampment. And then she said, Lila said to us, I mean, to, well, to me, I think that um, to Eve, uh, I think Agustina, the Argentinian, would represent like hope, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or someone that actually sees you for the first time maybe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i think even I, I don't know if the translation it's in in english you get the translation but um because there's a lot of mexican also words down there and playful and everything but 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 then there was a point where she with the argentinian uh, woman offers eve to go to, to, to Argentina, but she only says it like, you know, like randomly. It's very casual. Yeah, very carelessly casually. Yeah. Yeah, but for Eve, that was something important. Well, but the way the mother, so, the way the mother sort of just comes to rely on Eve to be there to, to do daycare on top of her normal everyday work as the chambermaid, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting. Yeah, and also that she can't really, because she pays for someone else to take care of her own baby. Yeah. Exactly. And that was that that's a paradox. You know, you can't take care of your baby because you're working, but you're taking care of another baby while you work. Let's talk about that other the the other character, uh Minitoy, who is Eve's coworker, because uh Minitoy sort of comes off like a friend to Eve, but also in a way kind of uses her a little bit too. Yeah. I mean in terms of the story as well, I think we needed a Minitoy there. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise that would have been like, Oh my gosh. This is too much. Yeah, um, it's quite a performance by Teresa Sanchez, too. Yes, she's a phenomenal actress as well. And I, we didn't meet until the set. Mm. But uh, Lila casted her separately because she doesn't live in Mexico City. So uh, she said to me that I was going to have a great chemistry, that she was, she was completely sure about it. And once again, we trusted Lila, both of us. So we went to the set. She worked separately with Teresa and she worked separately with me and then she she put us together and at the first day that we had seen each other it was that set and it was filming and it and that was great 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 chemistry I, also I think it was on purpose that they she didn't let us meet before yeah she wanted to have that kind of 
realistic chemistry right um in the set and yeah she pulled it off and and, and i think that worked really great and i think Minita is that part of the evil malicious personality that you needed to have in contrast of eve mm. and also that that encounter i think that's that's key in 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 the movie in the film thanks to that as well she takes guts you know to say hey this is i'm defending myself and i'm gonna defend my work because I know where I'm worth, and it was because of also all the situation that she deals with, Minita. There was a critic who said of your performance that she bears the weight of an entire production where her ability to communicate unvarnished emotions without over-dramatizing is the story's foundation. Her performance is unaffectedly magnetic. As an actress, how do you feel when you hear praise like that? Some, honestly, sometimes I... I it doesn't sink yet. It feels, I mean, I've seen all the New York Times and I've seen some other uh, critics as well, great critics saying that um, I'm a revelation and that my work is amazing and that I just feel like happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> completely happy and with great gratitude. I mean, all my life I wanted to be an actress so to actually be an actress now and consider to be one, it's a dream come true. And every time I read the, I'm not only an actress, but people are saying that I'm a great actress. So that's a plus. And yeah, I'm just completely satisfying. Here in the United States, uh, and maybe elsewhere too, I don't know, the chambermaid is often and, and maybe unfairly and inevitably compared to Roma, Alfonso yeah. uh, Cuaron's uh, film based on a, his caretaker and housekeeper that he grew up with in Mexico City. What do you think of these kinds of comparisons? I mean, to me, they seem very different films, but I, I wonder what yeah. you think about that. I think the same. I think there's, there are two different films. They are different films, but I, I understand the comparison at the same time. And I think it's, it's also good for us, you know, because being such an independent film, sometimes it's, it's difficult for people to, to have a look um, to, to an independent film such as The Chambermaid. And thanks to Roma, I think we're getting like also a lot of attention. And then once you see it, you, you think, huh, this is actually a great movie and it's a different movie. But it, I, think it, I think it's positive that we've been compared. What's next for you? Can American audiences expect to see more of you? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's this Amazon Prime, I'm not sure if it's going to be in the United States, but definitely uh, whole Latin America and Spain. Uh, it's going to be called Hernan Cortez. It's about the conquest. And I'm playing Moctezuma's daughter. So it's like a princess and I'm, I'm speaking Nahuatl there. So that's an interesting character as well. I'm very proud of it as well. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful we can see a lot more of you here. And and, uh, I will just reiterate for our audience that's listening, please try to find The Chambermaid wherever you can, whether it's in a theater near you or on Netflix or other streaming service. Gabriella, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much. The Chambermaid received critical acclaim during its worldwide film festival run in 2018 and its theatrical release this summer. See it if you can or stream it when it becomes available. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff, 
in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.